0: Welcome, citizens. You're listening to New Amsterdam Radio, the podcast for creatives.
1: Here, thinkers and doers
0: always have a key to the city. The mayor is in, so office hours start now.
1: New Amsterdam Radio starts now. NewAmsterdam.com. How's it going, creatives and citizens, for the city of Creatives? Fuba Boys here in the mayor's office working. Trying to get myself back into the groove. I took a couple of days off and I had this weird thing where I was doing nothing and I felt weird. I was doing nothing. <laughs> so, I want to thank you so much for making this show part of your podcasting diet. Learn more at New Amsterdam on Instagram and a new underscore Amsterdam on that. But uh, new episodes are launched every Thursday, but every so often. We get a bonus episode like today. My guest Walter Ward wrote a book called Roadmap to Life that really outlines his life as an educator and as a person of color growing up 70 years ago. Getting a chance to sit with him is was well, kind of a pleasure, you know, to see another perspective, another way, the upbringing, way different than my own, and just to ask him questions about that and why he decided to put it in his book was definitely something. I think you'll appreciate Walter Ward. This book is called Roadmap to Life. You can get a copy of that book by sending out a letter or request to uh, 11236 Stewart Neck Road, in Princess Anne, Maryland, zip code 21853. They're available now, so yeah, probably you'll enjoy this. My chat with Walter Ward is right now. Welcome back to New Am Sam the podcast for creative thinkers, and doers. it's I, Flobo Boyce, the mayor, in the mayor's office, hang with people who are doing the thing. My guest on this edition of New Am Sam has written a book. This one here is called Roadmap to Life. And we have the author right here, Walter Ward. How's it going, sir? Everything's going very well. I'm glad to be able to speak to you. You know what? Likewise, you know, being able to connect with creatives is why I love to do what I do. But the first thing, the first top question was the name of the book, Roadmap to Life. I was like, "What is this a manual? Is this a guide? But actually, it's a memoir looking into your life. Talk
0: to me about naming your book that. Well, when when the book was written, it wasn't even written as a book. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a retired school teacher. I taught school for 39 years and I retired... And I was sitting home and days just writing. I don't know whether it was journalizing or or just writing things down. But as I wrote more and more, then I guess the Holy Spirit or something said, make it a book. Mm -hmm. And um, because I didn't have any title. I didn't have anything. I was just writing. And I've never been a writer. I've never been one that writes. Mm -hmm. But it has ended up as such. And I began to put it together. Then I see what I had I found out what I had written. So that's when I put the chapters in. And it's showing my life, I guess, from, from being a boy up mm-hmm. until the present time. And I'm also uh, a, a coach. So that's what brought the coaching part in. Okay. And the, the last chapter of the book is 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 quite revealing of, of life and, and, and things that have gone on in my life. But when I wrote that last part, it was dealing with my 40 years experience in the wilderness. Oh, you know, in the Bible, the wilderness is the experience for your mm-hmm. life. And mm-hmm. that's what that was. And, and there's a whole lot of things that was revealed there that I'm almost sorry that it's in there, but mm-hmm. it, they're all true and it hurts. It hurts me and it hurts some of my family that, that, that it's in there. So, but but it, it is it is I guess you'd say it is what it is, though I'm sorry well, you know your your book
1: comes from a place of of someone that's lived seemingly like more than one life, multiple lives and yeah. and 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 you're said you're an educator and, and a lot of times my educator friends have told me. When you're in the thick of it it almost seems like there's no time to do these things these projects what made you decide you know what i'm going to get my story on paper this is the moment this is the exact moment i decided i'm going to be an author write my story down
0: well what happened was years ago while i was still teaching there were many controversial things going on in my home community and i used to write articles and put them in the local paper concerning what was going on. There were many horrible stories, racial stories. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, as I said, I was a teacher in the area. And once I was out of teaching in the area, I would write about some of the things that were going on with the Board of Education with our Black people in the area. Mm -hmm. And it was negative, I guess, to the Board of Education. Well, at first, editor of the paper, was enjoying putting my um, articles in. But then when I put one in that was controversial, and and I guess he didn't want it to be, make the Board of Education look bad. Right. So now what happens is that newspaper would come out once a week. So if, if I put an article in this week, my article would go in this week, and the rebuttal would come out After they read it, it would come out the next week. Mm -hmm. So therefore, my my article had had its credibility and it had its weight to Mm -hmm. make both black and white listen and see what was going on. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, when I put this particular article in, it didn't come out that way. He held my article. he He read my article. But before he put my article in the paper this week that it should have gone, He held my article out, gave it to the Board of Education, and let them read it, and though they know everything was true in it, but as it is, my article was on one line, or or one space, and theirs was right beside it. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it lost its flavor, it lost its its weight, because he let them read it, and put their rebuttal in right with it when it should have mm-hmm. been mine this week, the public could read mine this week. Now, they hear what's going on. So now, now they have to answer next week. So once I saw that, I said, how can I get my information out mm-hmm. and and not have to go through this? Because the editor, he wasn't true to what he was supposed to be doing. Rather than let me have the uh, uh, my seat on the, on today and give them their seat tomorrow. Right. And my seat wait and put them both put me right with them tomorrow. So right. then I just started writing the stuff down as it was happening in my area. And that's when it became a book. That's when it, it, it well, I was putting a lot of stuff together that had happened. And all this stuff mainly is from memory. Because as you see, as you will read, if you have not read, and I hope you have, you mm-hmm. will find that it's talking about things that happened when I was a boy. Well, I'm right. 69, I mean, I'll be 70 in two weeks. So the information, the book just coming out, the information is starting from my childhood. And I've had people that read it to say, how do you remember all of that? How mm-hmm. have you remembered? And And they also tell me, while reading the book because they're from the same area they said they feel like they were right there you know in the book they're right back to where that was when it was going on these were people my age and older they said they feel like they're right there with the book or with the actions that is going on as they're going on not here what 50 years 60 years later so that's that's where the book came from
1: so you mentioned your upbringing. Uh, what was that like for you? I understand everyone has their own challenges. Everyone has a different deck of cars. They're adults. But day to day, week to week, was it was it
0: advantages? Was it disadvantages?
1: What was that like?
0: You know what? As as when we, when I talk to people of my age group or a little bit older, I'm going to tell you this. We were poor but didn't know it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, I, and you say, what well, what does that mean? everybody in the area was of the same financial state, basically. Uh, you had big families. Everybody worked to help themselves. But also, when we worked to help ourselves, your family would work have help, help yourself, your family. But if you needed help with something in your family, my family was there to help. If I needed something, your family was there to help. So mm-hmm. we feel like, I feel like I lived a, a, a very good and, and almost wealthy life because sure. it, it wasn't one that you felt like you couldn't have anything. Um, and like at night, um, I lived in the in, in a, the country area, a lot of open space and homes were maybe not quite a half a quarter mile apart maybe. And some of them were closer, but say 10 o'clock, everybody's lights in their house were out by 10 o'clock at night, even if, well, we didn't have television, so there was no television. But um, if if you looked out and saw somebody's light, outside light on, because we did have electric, no television. We didn't have electric first when I was a little boy. But um, if somebody's outside light was on after nine or 10 o'clock, we didn't have, I, we had a phone, but a whole lot of people around us didn't have them. My grand, cause I was living with my grandmother. My grandmother would have me to get up
1: mm-hmm.
0: and walk to that next house that had the light on to find out why that light was on. And wow. usually, that usually that meant there was a problem going on. Somebody was sick, somebody needed something. So now the whole community will know what's going on and then they're all there to help. So that's how the community was. And, and we played we played all the sports. In the summer, we played softball, baseball. Uh, we played basketball when it was basketball time. We played football. We played everything. And, and we played on the teams in our school. So I didn't grow up poor because mm-hmm. everything, we didn't always have what we wanted. But I never did go without anything that I needed. And we, as young people, didn't mind working. In fact, uh, uh, when school was going on, in May, strawberry season, early okay. May. And our school was seven miles away from us. And during those few days of strawberries, when they were really uh, uh, just opening and they were doing good, we wouldn't even go to school. We'd get up about five or six o'clock, go pick strawberries, make yourself three or $4, because we're only getting 10 cents a quart. Make yourself three or $4, Then go back home, take your bath, we didn't have uh, running water, so we had tubs and uh, basins. And we'd take a bath, get on our bicycles, and it would be about 10 or 12 of us. And we'd ride our bicycles to school that day. Nothing that our parents made us do, but we did it because we wanted money in our pockets. So this is the way we we did. We picked a crop all the summer, tomatoes, Beans, strawberries, cucumbers, and that's how we made our money back in the day and parents didn't have make us do it. Mm-hmm. We did it because we wanted money and we wanted to help our families.
1: What was the money going to like snacks, clothes, books fees yeah.
0: well, whatever uh, okay. um, things were and you I told you three or four dollars well, but three or four dollars back when I was growing up would go a long ways because you could take a dime and buy twenty cookies right. So you could take a quarter and you think you were rich. So right. for us, that meant our parents didn't have to take the money from what it took to run the house to give us money to put in our pockets. And mm-hmm. if they needed it, they would, they would use the money for the house if that's necessary. So it was good It was good for us to walk around when we were hanging out, uh, wasn't no really town. We were on, like I told you, in the country. But if we'd ride our bicycle to the store We had money. Everybody had their own money. You didn't have to borrow from anyone and you didn't have to ask parents to give you money.
1: Throughout the course of the book, uh, you touched upon the uh, integration period in this country. White kids, black kids getting together in public schools. Uh, And you go in depth with your experiences. But overall, what was your experience like? Was it as contentious as when I was a kid watching the newsreels? Was it like fights all the time? Was it kind of like we're in the suck
0: together? What was like your experience? Well, I went to all black school for 11 years. Mm -hmm. Um, My senior year was when the... uh, total integration hit in the area so that was 6970 but from the first grade through the 11th grade we were all in the same school it wasn't very large i guess it might have been 3 400 students in the school from the first through the 12th grades but we had morals teachers you you had to sit there and learn um, if you didn't get your work done you had to stay at the school and do your work when we walked down the halls from class to class, we didn't come out of our room massively and just go. The 11th, usually 11th and 12th graders were monitors on the halls. So you had to come out of your classroom. And if you were going to another classroom, the monitors were down the middle of the hall. We had to line up in our classrooms, wait till that class that's going by gets by, or we if we were going at first, they had to stop until we got out. Mm-hmm. And you walk down the halls in a straight line. You had to walk all the way down to the end, turn around to come back if your class was on the other side. No talking. But what that was, was teaching discipline. It mm-hmm. was teaching order. When you first got school in the morning, once the bell rang for school to start, we had to come in the room, sit down, and we had devotions of oh, scripture, prayer, you might sing, give news, and the teacher, we didn't have intercom system. So then the teachers would let us know what was expected for the day. And you sat down and got quiet. So that meant you got discipline, you got order, and you got ready to go to your first spirit class. And that's mm-hmm. how it was. Now, this was for the seventh through the 12th grade. The elementary was on the other end of the building, and they we didn't deal with them. You know, once you got in seventh grade, you were a big boy, a big girl. <laughs> the, sick, the, the little From the first through the sixth grade, they stayed in their classrooms and that teacher was with them all day. But we moved from class to class. So we had, we felt good. We didn't know that we were being trained because it was what we were used to is what we were taught. We didn't know that something was wrong with that or right with that, not wrong. Something was right with that until my senior year, sixty-nine, seventy, when schools integrated. We went over to the white school, because at that time, the, all the black schools were the ones that were, would become the middle schools. And even though in Crisfield, it would have been that way because Chris, the Crisfield white school was bigger, larger. So we went over there and got in those classrooms. Once the bell rang, when we, as the black kids in my class and all the classes, when that bell rang, that means school is the start. All the black kids would sit down, expecting what we were, look, were getting when we were at the all black school. Devotion, teachers telling us what's going on for the day. But we as black kids sat down and got quiet. The white kids never did sit down. They mm-hmm. were running around playing, talking, hanging out the windows the whole time. They never did sit down. Well, that became scary to us, to me. And as we've talked about it, see, we were put in a position that we didn't, we didn't ask for. This was thrown upon us that we had to do it. Mm-hmm. So um, we sat there and when the next bell rang to tell you that you go to your first spirit class, well, we, all the black kids just sat there because we were sitting there waiting for the teacher to line us up and excuse us to our next class. So when the white kids just grabbed their books and were gone, helter-skelter, and my homeroom teacher said, what's the problem? And and we said, we're waiting to be line up to to be excused. Oh, no, no, we don't do that. When the bell rings, you just go. So we all got up, looked at each other first, and got up and went out in the hall, and were scared to death. We stood up against the wall like, 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 What's going on out here? Because we weren't used to that. We were used to order and structure Mm -hmm. and discipline. And that right there is what caused the schools to be the way they are today. Because the black schools, we had structure, discipline, order, morals. But when we got to them, they had none. It was just (laughs) go. And it was just like going to the uh, um, rec center. To walk up and down the halls, and that scared us. And but when I came home one day, and told my father, who was a minister, I was always with my father and his brothers. And um, I told him, I said, and told him what was going on in the schools. He said, in twenty years, there's going to be no discipline. Well, in twenty years, there was none. And here now, fifty years later, we see where we are. And that's because nobody tells the teach students what to do anymore. Now the children are in charge. When I was in the all black school, your teachers, the men teachers had wears ties, shirt and ties and suits every day. And the ladies had to wear, if you had on a suit, it was no pants. It was a, a blazer with, with a skirt or dresses. Therefore you could tell the students from the teachers. And When you spoke to a teacher, you said, yes, sir, no, sir, and you didn't speak until they recognized you. But as of now, we've gone from there to where we are today. And that's that's what, so what did I get for 11 years? I had discipline in my senior year and up until today, 52 years later, you see what we have.
1: Well, you also mentioned that you were educator for a long time, and I guess you're on the ground floor, watching that change, watching that shift. And and uh, I know from the outside looking in that teachers are expected to do a lot, a lot more than what's in their job description. They're like counselors, they're test givers, they're they're that kind of. now they have some people are arguing that you carry weapons. Uh, what what's been your experience in that shifting role for educators in this country?
0: It has changed because when I first started teaching right after the um, the integration in 74, 75, when I got my first job as a teacher. It was just like it was in my classroom. It was when I was a student. The teachers were still in charge. And the students at that time were still listening to teachers. And, and, and if a parent, teacher told a parent something, especially in the Black families, the teacher was the teacher was right, whether whether the parent felt they were or not because the teacher's the one in charge. But as time went on, now for my whole 30 years, 39 years, in my class, I kept discipline. And the children, when, when a new child would come in my class or a new year would start, the students at the beginning of the year, because I had discipline, I didn't allow the things to do like they were doing in other classes. And the, t- the students would say, "His mean, his mean because I maintained the order like I had it from when I first started. But by Christmas, I was getting all the Christmas presents from my students because Mm -hmm. they felt one thing, what is going on Mr. Ward's class, I feel safe. I feel that he cares. And this is what the children need now. And they are crying for, but they don't know it. But the teachers are so young that they've gone through life the way these children are so um, they don't they do know how to uh, be uh, uh, that person who's in charge. And uh, they started giving the children candy, or buying them clothes to try to make them act right. That's not what it is. My father told me when I first started teaching, as I told you, he was a minister. I was the youngest at the time for, with with um, six children. We had end up with 10. And when I started teaching, the other four were born. But he said, Bernard, when you go in your classroom, if you don't want the horses to run, don't let them out in the pen. I said, what that mean? He said, if you want discipline, you've got to go in there with discipline every day. Be stern, but fair. Be firm, but fair. But don't ever start playing with them. Because once you start playing, then you lose who you are. And so that's what I did. I could, I was teaching the um, 11th and 12th graders physical science. And I was, um, I left my class one day, went down the hall. And the principal, black principal, the white, uh, black vice principal, white principal. And -hmm. they were standing on the hall by the office. And um, well, they'd already seen how much discipline I had. So they asked me, was it my planning period? And I said, no, I left my door open, went down the hall to the bathroom. They said, Mr. Ward, this your plan here? They wasn't doing it in a negative way. They were just wanting to know. I said, no, this is not my plan appear. I'm going to the bathroom. And they said, your door is open. I said, yeah. Well, we don't hear anything. There ain't nobody in that classroom. I said, well, yes, it is. At that time, we had 30, 35, 40 kids in one class. I said, oh, they're in there. No, Mr. Ward, they're not in there. I said, they're in there. I said, well, come on, walk down to my room. Let me show you they came on down to my room and I'm right with them. And they look, Mr. Ward, how you do that? How do you have all those kids in there and everybody's working? And you're not there and the door's open. And then I told them, I said, this is not something that, that I was taught by nobody, but my father. And it's everybody don't have it but I could help other teachers get it if they're willing to listen and do it. If you be firm with your children, and be the same way all the time, they will learn to be that way because that's what they really want anyway. And now Mm -hmm. with me substituting, now the children will say anything. I'm sure if you have anything dealing with education, they'll curse you out, they'll say anything, but they they have not cursed me. They curse around me and I don't like it because I am a lay minister, but I learned now to listen to it. And I'm gonna tell you why. About four years ago, when I was subbing, And from that time, from, ten, from then, the time I started subbing until then four years ago, I still demanded the same thing that I demanded when I was teaching. But four years ago, a young lady was, a, I think she was a senior and I, she was in the class that I was subbing. Mm-hmm. And she raised her hand and said, Mr. Ward, can I tell you something? I said, yeah, what is it? She said, Mr. Ward, you're trying to make us do something that the teacher don't make us do. You're gonna have a heart attack, a stroke, and you might be in here just today or this period. When tomorrow we're gonna be acting the same way that we were before you got here. So I had to learn, and and, and that's part I don't like because that means now I gotta compromise who I am. But that's what has happened over the years. The administration have learned to compromise to say, rather than fight that fight of making them uh, uh, be quiet, making them not use the phone, making them not bring water bottles to school, it's easier to let them do it than it is to not make them do it or not allow them to do it. And so I had to compromise. So now when I go into classrooms, they still respect me. But as far as trying to make them be quiet, I don't. I make them all sit down and you can you talk to your friends while you're sitting, but you can't get up. I do I did keep that part because I know once you stand up, you're gonna be doing different things. So that's what the change is from the time I started till now. Now they can bring water bottles, they couldn't bring phones. Now they bring phones, they do their work. Somebody give them work on the on, on to do, and they use the phone to answer the question. I had a child wasn't talking to me last week, was talking to her friend, she was in 11th grade. And she said, I haven't learned nothing since I was in seventh grade. Because there's no whole lot of teaching going on. In some classes, there is, some classes not. Mm -hmm. And this pandemic has changed everything, because now everything's on a computer. But they have learned how to get the answers to the questions right on the computer. So they only have to do anything. And it's sad. Our future is bleak. So with
1: Roadmap to Life, a lot of your stories and thoughts have been put to pen to page. What was that like? Do you write when inspiration struck? Was it kind of like a structured thing to get it out by a certain amount of time? What made you decide to do this now? Or what was the writing process like?
0: Well, as I told you, I just started writing after all that happened. And <laughs> then after I'd written so much... And and it was, well, you know, it's a controversial time. It's racial time. So it just, I inspired my, it it inspired me to go back to my childhood and tell about how things were. Then when I looked at the sports, I looked how uh, um, back in the fifties and sixties, when I was growing up for the, for the sports, the white people had the money. So they had those uh, little league teams and they played white versus white. But then they found that we're not winning. Mm -hmm. But when the teams weren't going on, when we were playing on the playground, we'd have some white boys are with us and some black boys would be with them. And they started telling their fathers who were the coaches, if we put Bernard on our team, the only black now, if we put Bernard on our team, we'll win. So then they started coming to the black communities to get black boys or black girls for the softball or other sports to play on their team, and they found that once we had that black person, he was fast. He couldn't. They couldn't stop him. They started winning. Eventually, those teams became all black in high school as well as on the on the recreation area, and they started winning. They supported them, but then back say starting in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, they started saying, "Well, the children would say it, their child." The white child ended up being the scorekeeper or manager and the teams were all black just about. And then they started saying, I want to play. So then they stopped coming to the black neighborhoods. They stopped putting uh, money in the black neighborhood for athletics and the team started getting white again. And then when I started, when I was coaching in, um, About 16, 2016. And I've been Mm -hmm. coaching for 50 some years. Not as a head coach. I've been I've helped to win a whole lot of state championships in football, basketball. Let's go. Yeah. So um then when I got a head coaching job of a voice of a JV team in softball, girls. And I and, and and what they were doing, what they would do, the parents then. They, well, you saw how they started fighting. The parents started fighting the coaches, fighting the referees in the 80s and 90s, because they felt their children were superstars, and and, and they were right. And they're what they were trying to live their <clears throat> athletic abilities or lives through their children. So then the team started getting white again, and um, I, I I took this team, a girls' team, basketball. And we were getting, it was all white, one or two black girls. But now I brought some black girls in and they were playing together. And we lost a game early in the season. I had uh, all these freshmen and they were black and one or two upper-class black, uh, blacks. And we lost the game to an all-white team that was really good. Cause have been, said so they'd been together from ninth grade, now they're seniors. And they beat us 90, two to nine. But not only now this was basketball. Oh, okay. But that's even worse. But the (laughs) thing is, it was all white team, so you could tell it was a racial thing. They pressed us the whole game, knowing that we didn't have the ability to stay on the court with them, but they pressed. So they just ran up the score. But at the end of the game, the principal was a white lady. Do you know when she came to me and said, no. He said, Coach Ward, you played a good game. I said, what? Because, see, I'm, I'm used to being a winner. She said, we had a good game today. And a lot of the parents, white parents, were saying the same thing. How is that a good game? And what I found out, what they said was, as long as their child, which was white, is playing, they don't care about the score. See, mm-hmm. we as black people, we play to win. Mm-hmm. We don't play just to say we out here. We have mm-hmm. a goal in mind, and that is to win Though every game and get to the championship and hope we can win the championship. But it wasn't important to them to even win, let alone get to the championship. As long as my child's playing, and they would say, we'll get them next time. So that's, that's how things change. That's how it changed in sports and everything else. Uh, uh, they could bring water bottles to school. Well, you couldn't bring no water bottle to school back in the day. But those mm-hmm. little children started telling their dad, "Is our mamas, we had gym today, or we were outside for recess, and when we come in, they won't let us get no water. Well, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you a water bottle. You carry that to school. And when you want water, you can have water. Well, the teachers didn't want the students to have water in the, in the classroom, in no water bottle. Well, the te- stu- uh, the teachers didn't allow it. So then the parents went to the teacher and fussed at the teacher because you didn't let my child have a water bottle. Well, the teachers try to stick to their goal. They, then that parent go to the principal. The principal said it's the classroom of the teacher. If they don't want it, they don't have to have it. Now they go to, to the superintendent. If they want water in there, let them have it. Because it's easier to let them have the water bottles than have that fight of not letting them have it. And when they started that, those kids, some of those kids were bringing liquor in the the water bottle because they had ones that you couldn't see in. And it would be liquor in them. But this is how things change. And now children are in charge because anything they want, they tell the parents, the parents make the principal, make the teachers and teachers, the principal make the teacher, then the superintendent make the principals. So now that's why things are out of order now. The children are in charge. And that's where we are today.
1: Roadmap to Life available now directly. You can uh, have the notes in the podcast notes. Uh, you can get a copy of it. Is there any one thing that you want people to know when they uh, purchase a book from you as they read the pages that they could take away from?
0: Everything in the book is true. It wasn't. It's not a book that, that was made up. Or, um, and I put things in there to say um, this, just to make the book sell even though I'm sorry about some of the things that are in there, but mm-hmm. they are true. Mm-hmm. And so the only, it's only one thing in the book that's not true. And it, it, it's not true, but I thought it was. And that is my father had, had um, five brothers. It was six of them mm-hmm. in the family. And I thought it was only one of his brothers that didn't fight in World War II, but it was two. One Mm. of my uncles that we thought fought in the world in World War II did not. Okay. So it was my father and three other brothers that fought in World War II and the other two did not. His baby brother and one of his older brothers did not. That's the only thing in the book that's not true. Everything else is true. And while I'm talking about World War II and this is Memorial season, Memorial Day season, you know, when my father got out of World War II, and all the black men in the area, when you get out when you get out of war, you know you could go to the veterans' board or whatever and get money to go to school, build homes, or start businesses. Mm-hmm. When the black men in the area where we're from, when they went to those veteran boards, they were told, "We're sorry, we're not giving black, colored men no money." Mm-hmm. Well, that that put us as Black people already behind because my father at, at my house, he had six churches. Well, no, he had four when he came out of World War II. He had no home, so they had go buy a little two. Uh, um, somebody that had a house. You buy it and move it to your property. We had two rooms up and two rooms down. The same one, that white guy who came out of the same war with him had a brand new home, great big home, had money to go to college or start a business. My father had to go working in seafood or or, or farm work, which is nothing wrong with it, but coming from the military with with, uh, the white man, his counterpart or his buddy who was right beside him in World War II, comes out with a new home and uh, money to go to college. And he comes out, got to go find hustles. So that, that's what put us behind. But we had to work hard to, to stay and maintain. Well, thank you,
1: family, for your service. Roadmap to Life available now. Mr. Ward, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate your time here on New Amsterdam Radio.
0: And I appreciate being here. I've enjoyed it. And I hope I didn't dominate or talk too much. But it was my book to be sold. And I'm, I'm proud and glad that you uh, took the time to allow me to tell about my book.
1: <laughs> my pleasure.